This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Yuri Sleskin, who is professor of history at UC Berkeley and director of its Institute for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. His most recent book is The Jewish Century. Yuri, welcome to our program. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? Moscow, Russia. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? It's it's a very big question. Uh, well, they were they were against the regime, so I grew up anti-Soviet. Mm-hmm. So that's their main contribution, I guess, to my political upbringing. And is, is was it a very political household that you lived in with your parents? Yes, there were a lot of conversations about about politics. And. Uh, for quite a while, you didn't know you were Jewish, but one day you found out a neighborhood girl who you, I guess, were interested in was Jewish, and what did your father tell you? Well, he actually was a boy, and I found out that he was Jewish, and I told my father. I don't remember how old I was, um, but anyway, I told my father, did you know that so-and-so from apartment 15 was Jewish? And so my father turned to me and said, let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. So, so after he told you, which I guess was that, that you had Jewish ancestors. On my mother's side. He himself is not, is not Jewish, but he told me, well, I'll tell you something about your mother. It was quite a blow. Uh, uh, in what sense? Well, because it wasn't cool to be Jewish. I see. <laughs> I see. And uh, uh, after that, did, how did that reorient you finding out that you were Jewish? I mean, was it, was it something you kept inside, or did your, your, your political ideas get influenced by that Jewish identity? Well, the two influenced each other, because being Jewish, since it was not a religious identity, uh, and it was cultural in a certain peculiar sense. So it was political to a great degree, and so being Jewish, at least in Moscow, among the intelligentsia meant being uh, anti-Soviet. Mm-hmm. And so the two sort of reinforced each other. Being anti-Soviet meant, not automatically, but did mean in many contexts that you would, were probably Jewish. Mm-hmm. And being Jewish meant in a lot of contexts that you were probably anti-Soviet. Again, it wasn't a, a 100% guarantee, but it was likely enough. And, and by, by the way, what year would this have been when you discovered that, that you had Jewish ancestry? In the mid-60s, I would guess, early to mid-60s. Right, so really at the height of the Cold War. Yes, although again, the Cold War is an American concept, not really a Russian one. Mm-hmm. In, in what sense? So we didn't, at the time, we didn't really refer to it as the Cold, Cold War. War or Cold War era. Now it's used in Russian to refer to that period. But at the time, Cold War was something that was associated with Western uh, terminology. Mm-hmm. You, and, and, and so uh, let's talk a little about your Soviet identity uh, as a citizen of the Soviet Union. So were you, uh, were, uh, were you, you said you were anti-Soviet, but help us understand exactly what that means. Was it the, was it communism or was it the Soviet regime that was your... Uh, 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 the thing that you didn't like? Well, both. The um, idea was that the, that the idea of communism was a utopian one and perhaps an undesirable one and that the regime based on that idea was illegitimate. Mm-hmm. So it was both. It was being anti-communist in principle and being anti-Soviet in that the regime was seen as, uh, as illegitimate. And what, what about your, did you have an identity as a Russian? Uh, I suppose so. Uh, but, you know, when you live in Russia, it's a default identity, really. So it doesn't mean, or it didn't mean as much to me then as it does now. Now mm-hmm. I strongly identify with Russia. At the time, 
since everyone did. And it, but but this, it was also an ideology to some extent in that clearly I was taught uh, also as a matter of principle to, you know, to love the Russian language and Russian literature. And as I actually try to write in the book, this love of the Russian language and, and literature is a kind of secular religion in, um, in the Soviet Union, was and still is in Russia. In your article uh, 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 about uh, <clears throat> Russian Soviet nationalism or nationalism within the Soviet Union, there was a, a few sentences there. We'll talk later about that article, but you said you wrote every Soviet citizen was born into a certain nationality, took it to daycare and through high school, had it officially confirmed at the age of 16, and then carried it to the grave through thousands of application forms, certificates, questionnaires, and reception desks. It made a difference in school admissions, and it could be crucial in employment, promotions, and draft assignments. So you're, you're describing a world that you knew pretty well, Absolutely. I guess. Yeah. And, and so as a, as a Jew, as a, per, as a person of Jewish ancestry, uh, it's a better way to say that, uh, you, you basically uh, would put your Jewish identity or, or not, or would it be a Russian identity? What were you? In, 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 the, in the context well, yeah, of this. In my own mind, I was, and indeed there was, according to the prevailing Soviet terminology, I was a half-breed. <laughs> and I would refer to myself when asked in conversation by friends and so on, I'd say I am half and half, mm -hmm. half Jewish, half Russian. Because again, Jewishness was an ethnic category in the Soviet Union. Um, had to do with your blood, not your, not your convictions or whatever religion. Uh, but I was, I guess, uh, unprincipled enough to put down <laughs> Russian in all my official paperwork mm -hmm. um, because obviously it made it much easier to get into college and to avoid being, being ridiculed and that sort of thing. Again, it wasn't really being unprincipled because certainly at the, when I was young and... I didn't really think of myself as Jewish. I just knew that my mother had Jewish or Jew, uh, Jewish background. Mm -hmm. So uh, then, then tell us a little about your education in the Soviet Union. Uh, what did you study? What were your interests? Uh, well, I was interested in history, but I studied literature. I was interested in literature as well, but, uh, but history departments were heavily ideological. Um, with a lot of time devoted to the study of Marxist-Leninism. So studying literature seemed to be a better, a better option. Uh, so I studied, I went to, to Moscow University, to the so-called philology department, where I studied linguistics and literature. Uh, but I was always interested in history. And so when I came over here, I, I went to graduate school in the Department of History. Uh, and before you came here to do uh, graduate work at the University of Texas, you, you did some traveling. Tell us right. a little about that, because I, uh, I think you mention in your book that it sensitized you to some of the issues that uh, you, would be, you, you became interested in over time. You, you were in Man Mozambique, is that? Right. And, and that was uh, after your degree in Moscow and before you right. came to... So I was there for, for a year, uh, and then... I you went were teaching? Back. Were you teaching? No, or? I was an interpreter. Interpreter, okay. A Portuguese, Portuguese, Russian interpreter. And then I went back to to Russia, worked for about a year and a half there, uh, in a publishing house. And then I immigrated and I left for Portugal, where I lived for a year. Mm -hmm. And so I first came to this country as a Portuguese graduate student. Mm -hmm. With a pa Portuguese passport, right. so so you've been uh, you've been good at you, you have multiple identities. I do, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which makes you flexible and also will will be an insight into kind of what, when we talk about your work uh, in a minute. And uh, when did you come to the University of Texas? What year? It was in January nineteen eighty three. Okay, nineteen eighty three, before the Soviet Union. Collapse. Right. What What was your? Uh, how did the collapse of the Soviet Union affect your thinking? Um, well, it 
it made me feel different about my my home country. That's I mean, it made me feel different about a number of things. I mean, obviously, it's not every day that the country where you were born disappears from the map. Uh, it forced me to think of Soviet history in different ways, I guess. But most important for me, it made me realize that I had emigrated from the Soviet Union, not really from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I identify more, I guess, strongly with with Russia today than I did before the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. So now that the regime, in other words, is not in the way, it's kind of easier to be Russian. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, was this... In what ways was this disorienting, or was it less disorienting and, and, and giving you a more uh, sense of who you were? Well, it was it exhilarating and exciting? It was. I felt bad. I was here during the the uh, events of 1991, the the attempted coup d'état, the fall then the fall of the Soviet Union, the rallies, the demonstrations, the anticipation. Mm -hmm. The change, you know, I started going back. I went back for the first time in 89, I think. After the fall or? Around? Right. Yeah. Well, it was the Soviet Union still existed, but the regime that I had sort of grown up with was no longer there for all practical purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was freedom of expression. There were street demonstrations. There were all kinds of articles in newspapers. Um, so it was a very exciting time to go back. Before we talk about your book, talk a, let's talk a little about doing history. Uh, uh, what, what do you think are the important skills for students to have uh, if, if they wanted to pursue a career in, in, in Russian history? Uh, my sense is that for you, literature is very important in understanding uh, what's going on. You mean Russian literature, yeah, Russian right, if you're, history yeah. specifically, as opposed to history in general? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously you have to know the language, right? Yeah, yeah. In addition to being curious, uh, and I think it's true of any the study of any culture that you um, should know the language and the culture. And so it may even be truer of Russia, because of this intense cult of literature in in Russian society, and the frequency with which people use quotations from poetry in their speech, uh, in their writings. So if you want to understand those nuances, then you better read a lot of literature. Mm -hmm. Now, let, let's talk uh, a, a little about your book, and I will show it to our audience again, The Jewish Century. Uh, it's a very uh, complex book uh, with uh, many themes, and I want to... Uh, pursue some of the, the, impo the important themes. And uh, one is, uh, in your first chapter, you place the Jewish people in the context, really, of, of other people, similar social and <clears throat> functional roles. Now, I think you mentioned that you were sensitized to this because of your, your trip to Mozambique. Uh, you, you saw... Uh, uh, the Indians there right. and their role. Talk a little about that, and then uh, let, let's talk a little about your argument uh, with uh, seeing the Jews as what you call Mercurians as opposed to Apollonians. Apollonians. Yeah. It's not sorry. a very yeah, particularly original observation because the Indians are known uh, as the Jews, or some people call them the Jews of East Africa. Um, but it was striking to me when I was in East Africa to see Indians perform pretty much the same functions uh, as Jews had in Central, in Central Europe and the Russian Empire. And not only perform the same functions, but being perceived in the same way. Uh, feared, disliked, uh, admired in pretty much the same terms. Mm -hmm. Moreover, I didn't have, I didn't know many Indians in Mozambique, but I knew some, and my sense at the time was that they viewed their neighbors, clients, customers, um, 
in ways that were similar to the way uh, the Russian Jews had viewed their peasant Ukrainian, Belarusian, Lithuanian neighbors. And you so it just sort of struck me how, uh, how similar their situations and in some ways identities were and made me curious about, about this as a comparative uh, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You, you conceptualize uh, this uh, status and role uh, and name it after the gods, right. um, the god Mercury. So explain what a Mercurian is uh, in your terms, uh, 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 a concept which you apply both to the Jews and, and to the Indians and other peoples, actually. Well, I, I, what I argue is that in traditional societies, and I do not in this context talk about, talk about industrial, post-industrial societies, but in so-called traditional societies, one could divide... Uh, societies into two basic categories, food producers and uh, service providers. Obviously, there are service providers within any society, but what I find interesting is that there were whole ethnic groups, demographically complete societies that did not engage in food production and uh, specialized in providing services to the surrounding food-producing population. And those communities, again, those ethnic groups that specialized in exclusively in the provision of services. I call Mercurians after the, the god of commerce and trade and the god of messengers, guides, healers, all mm-hmm. kinds of border crossers and go-betweens. And what are their characteristics? Um, well, they are strangers by vocation, by trade, by definition. Um, they have to be strangers in order to perform their function. And they can perform their function because, because they're strangers. So uh, in order to remain strangers, they have to uh, do certain things or be a certain way, uh, behave in a certain, in a certain way. And so it is true of most Mercurians, of most ethnic groups who, um, who do these things, that they, they tend to speak a language that is foreign to the surrounding population. They either bring such a language with them or they um, invent one. Um, they um, tend to have fairly rigid dietary taboos. They do not share meals with their clients. They tend to be endogamous. They do not share wives with their clients. And if you don't share wives and meals with your neighbors, you clearly are going to be a radical stranger. That, that is one way not to sort of engage, engage with others, uh, not to be able to accept hospitality or indeed to offer hospitality. Um, they are, again, by definition, transients, wanderers, travelers. Um, and that is true not only of nomadic uh, groups, but even of settled groups such as Eastern European Jews who think of themselves as exiles, who may live in one place for hundreds of years, but are committed to the idea that they are not from around here, that they belong somewhere else. Um, so those would be, they, and they tend to present themselves in a way that would be sort of a mirror image to the way they understand their hosts to be. Uh, men are usually um, pointedly non-belligerent. So and again, not fighting uh, is a good way not to engage in sort of cross-cultural interaction. The women, on the other hand, are perceived as as aggressive and sometimes therefore attractive and so on. So they share certain certain traits. These groups, that is. All of those groups, right. And they they tend to view their clients and customers and hosts, however you call them, in similar ways and they tend to be perceived by those groups in similar ways. And I think it's true of 
you know, overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia and Indians in Africa and the, the Lebanese in West Africa uh, and, uh, or in, indeed in South America and all sorts of other groups mm-hmm. in the Middle East in particular, Africa. Now, now, now distinguish the Mercurians briefly. Tell us a little about the, 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 the other main category which is uh, identified with the god Apollo. Uh, well, Apollonia, again, Apollo was the god of both livestock and agriculture. So Apollonian societies, the way I use the term, are societies that are organized around food production uh, that can feed themselves, societies that consist, in, again, um, in the traditional era, that consist, used to consist mostly of uh, peasants and various combinations of uh, warriors and, uh, and priests who expropriate peasant labor by controlling access to land or salvation. Uh, but essentially those are societies that are, whose origins are in, uh, in the production of food, or a particular way of producing food. They, you know, usually traditional ethnographers distinguish between agricultural, uh, between hunting-gathering agricultural and pastoral societies. And so what I what I am proposing is that we add another category, that there was another way of making a living that was actually quite traditional and fairly common, this way that is, you know, can be known as Jewish or, if you will, Armenian. But it is an old way of, of, way of life, way of making a living, uh, to specialize exclusively in the provision of services. Services. We're talking again about the Mercurian. We have returned, right, sort of juxtaposing the, the, the Apollonians the, and the Mercurians. Right. Now, this, your, your hypothesis here uh, really offers an important insight into the roots of anti-Semitism. Talk <laughs> a little about that, and, and not just anti-Semitism, the riots against, uh, you know, uh, Chinese communities in Southeast Asia yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it, it sort of follows almost from what you're proposing. Right. Right. So what the idea is that there is really nothing unique about anti-Semitism. There may be something unique about particular forms of anti-Semitism. But this particular sort of dislike of the Jews is comparable and indeed very similar to, to the dislike of the overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia, or in Indonesia, uh, of the Indians in East Africa, Armenians in, uh, in uh, the Ottoman Empire, in what is now Azerbaijan as well, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the next important element in the equation that you're proposing is uh, really uh, the extent to which Mercurians, and in particular the Jews in Europe, played a central role because <clears throat> of these skills, because of their social role, in positioning themselves as agents of modernity as modernization uh, came to Europe, changed Europe through industrialization, through international commerce, and so on. Talk a little about that, because uh, it it becomes a very important element in the story you're telling. Right. Uh, Again, and I do not argue that the Jews were instrumental in bringing modernity to Europe. What I uh, am arguing is that they were very successful at being modern mm-hmm. because they're, uh, the things, some of the things that they had specialized in, um, finance, law, entrepreneurship, medicine, things that used to be dangerous uh, used to be viewed with suspicion. We're now in great demand. Moreover, we're now the uh, most fundamental features of uh, modernity. Um, those most in demand, those that would lead to a great deal of success, prestige, and so on. And so these traditional Jewish uh, specialties, such as entrepreneurship, you know, law, medicine, uh, um, what would become the media, uh, in other words, these intermediary activities, uh, would pl- place them 
at the top, or at least in some key positions in the modern world. And that obviously leads to success on the one hand and to resentment on the other. Now, as a, as a, cis, uh, as a historian of, uh, of Russia and of the Soviet Union, uh, you, you see the, uh, the Jews as uh, performing a very important role bringing these skills to the aftermath of, uh, of the communist revolution. Talk a little about that, because this wasn't the first time this had happened in Russia. In an earlier period, it had been Germans that, that had played an important right. role in uh, the consolidation of, and modernization of the czarist state. Right. Um, well, the Jews were prominent enough in some of the same spheres, banking, uh, various forms of entrepreneurship, law, medicine in Imperial Russia as well. But uh, there were various constraints on their, on their status, on how far they could go. Uh, and so after the revolution, with the abolition of the so-called Pale of Settlement, of all kinds of restrictions, uh, residential and, uh, and, and otherwise, uh, they migrated en masse from the f former Pale of Settlement, from where they used to live in what is now Belarus, Ukraine, and Lithuania primarily, uh, to the big cities of the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and did exceedingly well in the new Soviet education system. Um, so, and that's a big part of the story that I am telling in the book. With this, what's important to me is not only to talk about the role of uh, Jews in the creation of the Soviet state, uh, and, and they, by the way, not only did they do very well in the Soviet education system, but they welcomed the Soviet re re regime uh, more, uh, more warmly, so to speak, than most other, uh, most other groups in the Soviet Union. Um, but uh, in any case, it was important for me to point out that this was a migration. Mm -hmm. that we could talk about this movement of Jews to Moscow, Leningrad, uh, and other cities of the Soviet Union in the same way we could talk about the, the movement of their cousins, brothers, sisters at the same time to Palestine um, and to the United States, among other places. Just to pursue this point about the, 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 the Jewish uh, impact uh, as a result of the migration, it is also the case that in the interwar period, and maybe even a little before, Jews assumed very important roles in other parts of Europe. For right. example, uh, Austria, Hungary, uh, and even Germany. Right, right. Uh, but I suppose the difference, and again, in some of the same... Uh, some of the same spheres of activity, higher education, law, uh, law, medicine, and so on, uh, science, journalism, uh, entertainment. The difference, I suppose the diff greatest difference was, number one, that of course private entre entrepreneurship was outlawed in the Soviet Union, and Jews uh, suffered disproportionately. As a, as a result. So a very high proportion of um, traders, uh, businessmen, who were deprived of their rights and often arrested, uh, had their property confiscated, were, were, were Jewish. On the other hand, I suppose the other important difference was that in the Soviet Union, uh, state um, employment was open to the, there was no official anti-Semitism at all in the Soviet Union. In, in, there were fairly effective campaigns against anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union in the interwar period. And so that resulted in the fact that there was a very high proportion of ethnic Jews. And again, we, we know we're talking about Jews as an ethnic group in this case, right? Uh, or we can call them just immigrants from the Jewish Pale of Settlement. Uh, or people from Jewish Jewish homes, they were very well represented in in government positions, in uh, in the police, 
uh, in the armed forces, among among generals, and so on. And scientists among too. Diplomats as well as, but as I was saying, you know, science, medicine, law that was common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right throughout Europe, but if we look at some of the differences between the Soviet, you know, the position of Jews in the Soviet Union in that period, and the position of Jews in Europe, the the greatest differences would be the lack of this sort of entrepreneurial route in the Soviet Union, but on the other hand, the openness of the state, uh, and again the fact that of course the Russian Revolution resulted in the destruction of the old elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of gentry elite or ethnic German elite, they were, they were gone. And so there was no former sort of pre-existing elite for these emerging young Jews to compete with. So they did, their success was even more spectacular mm-hmm. than their success in places such as Budapest or Berlin or Vienna or New York. And now to the next chapter in in the story that you're telling, and and that really is that what Jews uh, confronted uh, uh, after being the agents and participants in modernization was the rise of a nationalism which essentially tapped uh, this... this, uh, uh, this need uh, on the part of the people you identify with Apollo uh, to exclude the the strangers, to turn against uh, the groups, uh, and in Europe it, it was it, Jews were very important that had helped bring this new era. But now the new era uh, was uh, encapsulated in the nationalist uh, form. Talk a little about that. Uh, well, the Jews were identified with modernity and some of the um, most obvious new traits of European states um, and uh, admired as a consequence, but also also resented. Uh, in the Soviet Union, the story was interesting in that, of course, the regime started out as a cosmopolitan internationalist regime, opposed to nationalism in principle, uh, a regime that assumed that uh, it was, that uh, the sort of communist future would be that without ethnicity, without tribalism. Uh, But that began, and that of course is what attracted so many Jews to communism, or at least one of the things that attracted them to, to communism. Um, and, but that began to change in the Soviet Union in the interwar period, basically starting in the mid-1930s. And the Soviet Union uh, began to be identified increasingly with the Russian Empire, began to sort of to think of itself, the regime began increasingly to think of itself as, a, as an heir, the Russian Empire, Russian culture, a Russian sort of imperial idea, and so on. And it became associated increasingly with uh, the Russian people understood in ethnic terms. And particularly after the so-called Great Terror, most of the new top officials in the Soviet Union were newly promoted ethnic Russians of peasant and blue-collar background. And so the atmosphere changed and the ideology began slowly but surely to change. And so all of a sudden, it turned out that this new Soviet intelligentsia, of which the regime was so proud, and Stalin in particular was so proud, was in some ways not Soviet because it wasn't Russian, because so many of them were ethnic Jews. And that became a more or less explicit issue for both parties, for the state and for the former Jews who were now Soviet intellectuals or officials, whatever, during the war, during World War II. And and the hidden secret here was the importance of Russia uh, and the Russian identity, which was submerged 
within the Soviet identity right. uh, as the policy makers were reinforcing the ethnic identities of all the people who were part of the empire. Right. Well, yes. This, this, as I say, the Soviet Union was increasingly represented as primarily Russia and then various allied nations and quasi-states mm -hmm. around it. And the Soviet people were represented as uh, a fraternal group led by the uh, older brother, the, the first among equals, the Russians. And Stalin emphasized that uh, during the war because he clearly used Russian patriotism, traditional Russian patriotism, Russian, actually, Christianity, um, as an important way to mobilize the population, the majority of the, of the population, uh, for, the, for, the, for the war effort. Um, and, and even more so after the war, more explicitly so after the war. Stalin's, one of Stalin's most famous speeches was a toast he raised publicly after the war to the great Russian nation, which he characterized as the glorious nation, a special nation, uh, that was responsible for defeating the Nazis and so on. So as a result of that, and there were other nations recognized as a part of the Soviet Union, but Jews were not. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the same time that the Soviet state was emphasizing the role of ethnic Russians, some of these uh, ethnic Jews, as a result of what the Nazis were doing, uh, as well as as a result of what Stalin was doing and saying, uh, were um, thinking of themselves as Jews more and more and wondering more and more about what it meant. Because mm -hmm. clearly since the Germans singled them out, uh, from among the Soviets. And then the Soviets, sort of some Soviets, began to single them out as not quite Soviet because they weren't quite Russians or anything else associated with the Soviet Republic. They began to wonder more and more. And, of course, that in turn reinforced the suspicion on the part of some members of the ruling, of this new ruling uh, establishment within the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. So, so the, 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 the Jewish dilemma became that, <clears throat> that uh, their, their great success as cosmopolitans, in a way, uh, now confronted uh, different types of nationalism or organizations that promoted nationalism. And they were essentially a people without a place uh, where they could uh, 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 realize their nationalism within Europe. Right. They... Uh, in a world of various nationalisms, in a world of states organized around the concept of ethnicity, in a world of nation-states, they seemed to be outsiders mm -hmm. and outcasts. Um, in the Soviet case, it was ironic mm -hmm. because they, in some ways, were more loyal to the official ideology than a lot of other people, uh, more committed to it. Uh, and that made their dilemma all the stranger in the Soviet Union. Um, so they, and that's, that's what makes their sort of trajectory in the Russian case so peculiar. And that was one of the questions that I had when I first approached the subject, is mm -hmm. the sort of the riddle of the transformation of the most Soviet and the most successful mm. of all Soviet ethnic groups into the most anti-Soviet and still the most successful mm -hmm. of all Soviet ethnic groups. The dilemma that struck me in college, actually, when I was surrounded by ethnic Jews, all of whom were members of this sort of the westernizing anti-Soviet wing of the Soviet intelligentsia, and many of whom were the grandchildren of, of communists. Mm -hmm. And none of them at the time wondered how that transformation had occurred. Because mm -hmm. they took their sort of anti-Soviet intelligentsia status mm -hmm. for granted uh, and didn't tend to, you know, we didn't tend to kind of wonder 
why it was why it was so. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in for the next chapter to explain what happens next, you turn to uh, Shalom Aleichem's uh, Tevia, the Dairyman, which was made in in America into the musical and movie Fiddler on the Roof. To look at and you look at the choices of three of his daughters, and in a way, each one of them makes a choice that that actually was a choice for the Jewish people, and that is a choice between uh, going to Palestine, finding at last the homeland, uh, uh, going to Russia, which we've just talked about and how that unraveled, and and then thirdly, coming to the United States. Talk a little about those three options and and how they they played out. Uh, I mean, what was distinctive about America? What was distinctive about Russia? And what was distinctive about Palestine? Well, you characterized them them uh, very well. Yeah. The, uh, the, those those uh, three migrations, as you say, were also three ideological pilgrimages, three political existential options, right? Three ways of being Jewish in the modern world and indeed three ways of being modern mm-hmm. in the modern world. And so one was non-ethnic liberal statehood in the United States. Um, uh, another one was secular ethnic nationalism in Palestine. And the third was communism, was um, this hope to create a world uh, without either uh, capitalism or tribalism, a world that was sort of based on the rejection of the American way on the one hand and the, the Zionist way on the other, so in, sort of in the minds of many of the Jews who opted for it. And so what is important for me to emphasize is just how terribly important the communist route was, that the migration to Moscow was incomparably larger than the migration to Palestine. And while the and it was about it was about as large as the migration from the Russian Empire um, to America, but it was much more politically charged. Again, this is not to say that every participant in one of those three migrations did it consciously and uh, made a rational choice. But um, I think those migrations do reflect the sort of three dominant uh, uh, positions within the Jewish community in Eastern Europe at the time. Now, these the 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 Jewish community in the United States, the Jewish community, well, the, the Jews in Israel, uh, and the Jews in the Soviet Union, the, their interaction in a way played an important role in the fall of the Soviet Union, in the sense that uh, the, 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 the Jewish neocons here were influencing legislation about immigration of the Jews from the Soviet Union. So this was part, a piece of the whole pressure on the Soviet Union, which led to its collapse. And the immigrants from the Soviet Union, one of their destinations was uh, Israel, which needed more people to, to balance the, the, the birth rates of uh, uh, the, the Arab population. What are your thoughts on that interplay of these forces? The, the, this is not the, expla- the only explanation of why the Soviet Union fell, but, but it's, a, it's a kind of a dialogue between these three communities uh, that became very important in, in shaping what happened. Uh, yes, it was. I, it's very important, I think, to remember that the people who, at about the same time, migrated from pretty much the same place to the United States, to uh, to Russia, um, and to Palestine, that they were, in some cases, interchangeable. You know, they were the same people, or they were closely related. They would be relatives, literally, in some cases, or they'd be neighbors, and some would go to New York, uh, and some would go to Moscow, and very few would go to, uh, to Palestine. And they retained, I think many of them retained some memory of their common origin. Some, you know, certainly for the longest time they corresponded with each other. Some people, and I have some examples in my book, would go to one place and then to another and then to the third and so on. Uh, of course, many 
um, immigrants to the United Jewish immigrants to the United States were communist. You know, the American communism as an ideology, as a movement, was largely a Russian Jewish uh, phenomenon. Um, there were many in Palestine early on who sympathized with the Soviet Union. There were some Zionists in Russia, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, they throughout the century they all kept sort of looking at each other and I think in the eyes of most uh, Jews who emigrated from the Russian Empire and that including you know parts of Poland and so on the Soviet option was by far the most successful I would say that for the majority of the Jews in the interwar in the interwar period uh, in the uh, 1920s and 30s, it was the migrants to Moscow who had the best deal, who were the most successful, who were associated with the greatest hope, uh, with this wonderful uh, experiment, and so on and so forth. Uh, but then, of course, things things began began to change. Uh, the Six Day War, the emergence, the creation of Israel, was a very important. Uh, event, of course, and then the war, the Six-Day War, um, which played a very important role in uh, creating a sort of new nationalist Jewish ideology among Soviet, among Soviet Jews. It was at least as important in the Soviet Union for the Soviet Jews as it was for the American Jews, uh, for the American Jews here and the sort of turn in the United States within the Jewish community from liberalism uh, to, uh, in some quarters, let's say, to Jewish nationalism, right? This sort of uh, special relationship with Israel and strong identification with, with Israel, uh, support for Israel politically, you know, special pride associated with, with Israel, and so on. And so, of course... All those things, you know, all, the, all, all three communities kept influencing each other. Uh, and so in that sense, so speaking specifically of the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, those are not the causes of the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it was an important element in the late, in late Soviet, sort of late Soviet, uh, Soviet history and certainly in the story of Soviet, Soviet Jews that there was Israel that presented an alternative. Uh, and help them form a new kind of national and nationalist identity. And then, of course, the fact that uh, American Jews in the 1970s, sort of late 60s, 1970s, so many of them were turning from radicalism, sort of 1960s radicalism, which in turn was clearly related sort of genealogical to, gene to social to various forms of Socialism in the 1920s and 30s, uh, and the and sort of universal liberalism, uh, to as I said, to various forms of Jewish nationalism, and a part of that, or one consequence of that, was um, was the movement to um, help uh, Jewish emigration from the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So, so in a way, we can say that the American Jews realized uh, uh, best. In the long term, the the, the Mercurian role they 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 uh, uh, received the most fruits from the 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 genealogy of, of having that Mercurian role. Whereas in Israel, uh, what you had was becoming uh, like the disciples of Apollo, basically. What what were the consequences of those things? Is that does that help us understand, for example? Some of the the actions that Israel has wound up taking, which, you know, that is the, the notion that in Israel the Jews were going to be like all the other nations, but now are engaged in activities that are being criticized by the community of nations. Yeah, clearly the Zionist option uh, was a, an explicit rejection of the Mercurian way of life, as mm -hmm. I call it, right, of sort of diaspora mm -hmm. Jewish Jewish culture. It was it was something embarrassing, something to to get away from, and so the idea was to create a nation of of, of warriors, a nation of, of 
farmers. And so it was, it was uh, the most sort of resolute rejection of traditional diaspora Jewish, Jewish, uh, Jewish life. Um, as you say, in the United States, of course, the greatest difference was the, the fact that the American state is not ethnically defined, that the American nation is not ethnically defined. And so Jews could pursue sort of the things that they were good at without being punished, so to speak, or resented by any group that could claim uh, the monopoly of uh, politics or could claim that the state was by right theirs, the way ethnic Russians could in Russia and the Spaniards could in Spain and the Germans could and certainly did in uh, Germany. So uh, in some ways, the United States ended up being the, or or the American option, ended up being the most successful, successful one. Uh, one final question, uh, and the question is this, uh, and before you answer it, I'm going to read something from the preface of your book. In finding the story of the Jews in the 20th century, what did you learn about yourself? That's my final question. And then I want to go back to your preface, which, where you write about your two uh, grandmothers, uh, and excuse my pronunciations, but one of your grandmothers was Angelina Zadonovich, and she had Cossack ancestors, and she lost everything in the revolution. And you write of her, at the end of her life, she was a loyal Soviet citizen at peace with her past and at home in her country. And your other grandmother was Bertha Kostrinitskaya, and she was born in the Pale. She emigrated to Argentina. She returned in the 1930s to take part in the building of socialism. And then, quote, you write, in her old age, she took great pride in her Jewish ancestors and considered most of her life to have been a mistake. This book is dedicated to her memory. So my question is, uh, in telling this story about the Jews in the 20th century, what did you learn about yourself? Uh, Well, I now have a slightly better idea of what it means to be Jewish than I did when I first asked my father about my, about my neighbor. Um, I also th- have a slightly better idea of what it means, or am more self-reflexive about what it means to be Russian. But I learned a lot more about my grandparents than I did really about myself, although, of course, one way to learn about ourselves is to learn about our grandparents. And that's partly what history is about. Uh, but uh, I think I, I at least tried to answer the question and answered it more or less to my own satisfaction of why such, such grandmothers uh, raised such uh, grandchildren, you know, sort of answered the question that occurred to me when I was back in, back in Russia in uh, college. So that would be the most, the most important one, I, I, I guess. Yuri, on that note, uh, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book. And let me show the book again, The Jewish Century, published by uh, Princeton University. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And thank you very much for this joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.